Quantum Chemistry Podcast with your host, Paul Orange. Hello, and thank you for joining me once more on the Modern Chemistry Podcast. We're back with episode 11 uh, for our 2021 season. And before I get into details of today's show, I just wanted to give you a few points of information that you might find helpful. I'm aware that towards the end of 2020, our publishing schedule got a little bit crazy and we did skip an episode or two. And our intention during the 2021 season is that we will be preparing an episode once every two months. And if we can, we'll be squeezing in some additional episodes in between. And if you want to make sure that you get those episodes as soon as they come out, uh, if you're listening to us on a podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, Acast, whatever your preference is, then please do subscribe and they'll drop into your feed as soon as they come out. And also, if you like the show, please do leave us a review and it helps other people find us. Also, we're always on the lookout for interview guests. So if you or somebody you know you think would be a great guest, please do get in touch with us via the helgroup.com website. So to episode 11, and it was my great pleasure to talk to Stephen Hilton, who is an associate professor at the School of Pharmacy of UCL, University College London. Stephen and I had originally agreed to speak about a year before we did, um, and we ended up speaking right at the beginning of February 2021. Uh, we were speaking remotely, uh, which will probably not surprise anybody, and we covered a really diverse range of topics, everything from virtual reality to 3D printing to data mining and how that influences the modern laboratory. One of the things that you'll hear from Steve is his belief in how these technologies and other technologies that are coming down the pipe have a great opportunity to increase access to science and scientific techniques to a wider number of laboratories and researchers and also democratize and share scientific discovery. And uh, it was a great conversation. And whatever part of the scientific community you're in, I'm pretty sure you'll find this to be a very enlightening and instructive conversation. I've put links to a couple of the terms and a couple of the resources that Steve mentions into the show notes. I've also put in uh, links to uh, find out more about Steve and his work. And so we'll go straight over to the conversation now and I'll be back to say goodbye at the end. So today on the show, I'm delighted to introduce Steve Hilton, who's an associate professor at UCL. Steve, welcome to the show and thanks for um, you know agreeing to do this. Uh, COVID-19 definitely got in the way of our plans for this. I think um, it was just before the first lockdown in the UK where we said, yeah, let's do this. And uh, we resigned ourselves to the fact we've got to do it virtually. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think it's... Um interesting how people's lives have changed over the last year really mm. all your plans are really either been put on hold or you've had to adapt and, and modify to suit so yeah i think this is an ideal one how technology is changing everything really i think it's it's a good link to what we're talking about today absolutely and i think your phrase there you know adapt to suit uh, that's something that you seem to be doing quite well so there's, there's a lot of areas i think we could dig into and i have to say for me, I'm a little bit fangirly because I, I see the work that you're doing and, you know, the stuff with 3D printing and virtual reality, it, it really fascinates me. But I want to take a slight tangent before we get there. And I want to ask you, Lobster Thermidor, how was it? Amazing. Amazing. I mean, yeah. my wife's a fantastic cook. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend it's mine. Um, yeah. I'm, we've been very lucky in lockdown. So it's, yeah. uh, 
you have to take pleasures in life. I mean, yeah. I, I do barbecues. That's fine. Right. Um, yeah. She does, the, she does the fantastic cooking. Yeah. I know. Are you a subscriber to the belief that if you're a, a scientist and you can follow a protocol, you should be able to cook because it's essentially following a recipe? Or do you think there's a little bit more magic involved in cooking? <laughs> I'd, I'd hope there is. I think it's the, the ability to taste is, is the key thing, yeah. to recognise flavours. And I think that's the, as a scientist, you have to observe. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense of taste is terrible. I, <laughs> if, if I'm told it's good, it's, it's good, and I recognise it. But yeah. I, I don't have that sense of taste. And I think as a cook, that that's an ability which separates everybody. I think the ability to observe, I mean, I can observe different uh, objects, their structures, data, interpret it, but I cannot taste differences that's a key yeah. skill I like and definitely something you shouldn't try in the lab for everybody no. who's listening right? <clears throat> definitely not definitely not <laughs> um, so, so moving on from uh, um, uh, f- from cooking um, uh, I have to say thank you to Kevin Lamb for making the introduction I know you and Kevin are collaborating on, on yeah. projects and I think you've published some stuff recently um, so like I said one of the things that I'm really interested in is the approach that, that you've been taking which, which I guess during you know the current um, situation with less physical contact um, has been helpful. You, you utilize a lot of modern technology to, to support your science. So 3D printing, virtual reality, which I know you use for a teaching substitute. I'm interested whether you use that in your research as well. But we were talking just before we started recording that um, in chemistry, there's always been an element of researchers having to make their own kit. And I think you've just brought that up to, you know, the absolute modern pinnacle. But, you know, you made a very interesting statement there about how it all comes together with, with digital data. So how do you see this interplay of the, the technologies that enable your research and then, if you like, the end goal of the research itself? I, th- I think I like to look back at it years ago when... All laboratories had, we had an engineer, mm-hmm. uh, we had glass blowers, we had electricians that all worked together with the, the sort of chemists at the forefront. And I think what's gone missing over the last decade or a couple of decades are those skills that have gone. Those engineers have retired, electricians have retired, and the glass blowers have gone as well. And I think that's a huge lack for science in general. Mm-hmm. That wealth of knowledge, that skill set has all gone. And I think that has impacted our science and our ability to do things creatively. We, we don't have that ability to make that unique piece of glass where we need with a slightly longer neck or, or adapted on there. And I think digitization, 3D printing or other technologies, Arduino, electronics, have given us that freedom again. But what it also gives us is the standardization. Because before, the glass blower could just see the glass was melting at that subtle, slightly higher temperature in their equipment. Whereas... That knowledge cannot be transferred easily. That skill set was gone. And I think with 3D printing, if we all agree to share, which I think is important, and share that information, we can share that knowledge that we, that we gain from this worldwide. Mm. I can create a design in the lab today and I can send it to Australia and they can have it two hours later straight away. So the promises are amazing. Do you think that the, the fact that those technologies are simpler for a broader range of people to access, uh, uh, you know, are important there. Because you know, for me, glass blowing, that was, you know, that was a skill and an art, right? You got good at that after a lot of practice. But 3D printing, like you say, you can almost buy a printer, I guess, load in the right file and, and press go and away it goes. I think that's the aim. I think there, there'll always be people who like to try things. And as scientists, I think we... We're supposed to be curious. I mean, I, I'm quite curious. I like to find out new things all the time. But there's others who aren't so curious about new technologies. They like to focus on one area. I, mm-hmm. I think I'm 
describe myself, I'd say more a scientist and less a chemist in some ways. Right. I have much broader interests. Mm -hmm. But I think that's good because you need interdisciplinarity, if that's a correct way of saying it. It's um, a good word. <laughs> it's a good word. It's probably not yeah. correct. But you, you have to be curious in science. And I think that's what I enjoy is looking at new things all the time. Mm. But there will be others who, who like to focus on subjects and that, that's fine. But they will need equipment from others at some time. And I think working with specialists is, is key. And I love working with people. I love working with Kevin. Uh, he may not say the same thing. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I think he would. <laughs> uh, he probably gets fed up with the phone calls. What's he going to talk about now? Um, right, right. <laughs> but it, it's that ability to try things with others that, mm. uh, okay, this works for me. What does it work for, for somebody else really is, is also crucial. Mm -hmm. And I think sharing information is really nice. I think we've, we've become more global. And again, yeah. with lockdown, I think with COVID, we've had to, which is also a good thing. So Kevin, I know, I know has been pestered into getting into 3D printing now, so that's good. Good. Um, but what he can do is I can share designs with him. He can print those out at the same time. You touched on something there that I was really interested in. You know, when I remember, well, when I think back to the time I had in the lab, I think, you know, I was in the lab at the sort of towards the end of that era where you had people who made their scientific careers off being technically good in a specific um, you know, it's a specific technique, um, not necessarily that they, you know, their, their research interests were focused on, I know, like a, a disease process or a chemical pathway or, you know, understanding that. I see now absolutely this this mix of if you want to be good on a technique, you've also got to then show that that can be applied, you know, in a, in a relevant area how do you think science is changing you know and even from the point of view of funding are people now looking at that you know don't just bring me a technique bring me a how i'm going to use it and how it's going to evolve or you know even just how do do you feel about it and it's you know i think interesting that comment you made about seeing yourself as a as a scientist and almost as an explorer all advances come at increased cost mm -hmm. so every scientific advance every technology will always increase the cost of the core equipment and i think that's it's great we should always have new equipment coming through, new technologies, mm. but quite often that creates inequalities. So what we can do, because we have the financial resources, people worldwide can't. And I, I think that's a huge problem for humanity in general. And I, I don't wanna to go too broad in this, but I, I think we, we mustn't neglect the fact that other people can't do the same experiments we can do because of the financial costs involved. And the more specialized you, you become, the more mm. equipment costs. But I think what, technology has given us 3D printing, low-cost electronics, is the ability to create equipment which works in pretty much the same way as the high-end equipment, but at less than 10% of the cost. So I think flow chemistry has always promised so much because it gives you the ability to control things, to replicate, mm. to do chemistry or chemical reactions in exactly the same way as others can do worldwide. So th there's no variation in the stirring speed or the flask mm. size. So flow chemistry, I think it's, it's, it's really the future of chemistry, but at the moment, the cost the equipment at 50 to 60,000 pounds per machine minimum. I mean, okay, there are lower cost options, but it, it blocks so many people getting into that. And I think that holds people back, that holds science back. And that's really why we got into 3D printing and flow chemistry, because we wanted to create our own low cost equipment to address that challenge personally, but more, I think, ultimately applicable worldwide for everybody. Interestingly, now that you're showing that in in practice are you finding that you're you're maybe connecting with people in regions where you wouldn't have previously who are interested to either use your designs or find out more is, is that starting to, to happen 
Definitely. I think as a business, you have to have commercial aspects. You have to make money. But ultimately, you, if you're doing new technology, you should also think about wider access as well and participation. Mm-hmm. I think that's really crucial. We, a big part of what we do is about access and education as well. And it has to be the same technology. I think we have to help each other out. We have to sort of push things forward, push the boundaries forward as we can do. Mm-hmm. But we, we should try not to leave people behind. I think that's also crucial. Is, is that something where th- there is a democratizing effect? In, you know, people in you know, areas where, like you said, they maybe couldn't access equipment from a vendor, they can, they are starting to use this? Yeah, so I think for, from our point of view, we've, in terms of flow chemistry, we've made equipment which does the equivalent of a £50,000 machine for £1,000. Now, if you think about a university, you're buying power, you can maybe buy one machine at 50000 but imagine you have 50 of those machines doing the same function. That changes things immensely. And I think it's that democratization of, of chemistry or science with 3D printing, which is, is crucial. I mean, you mentioned your background in biology. Now, in terms of biology, you will buy a gel comb for £60 simply because as a manufacturer, you need to charge that to, to make money on it, to produce it. But it costs you maybe 20 pence to print out the same design. So you, it, I think that's the approach. We, by, with 3D printing, we allow ourselves to do things more easily. And I think it's the, it's the setting free of the creativity of scientists, which I think is also crucial with this. Now, not everyone wants to design their own things, but if you can share the design and find it for free, you can make it in your laboratory and you can do things much more easily. I, I think that's crucial. We have to be open to sharing our designs, our, our disasters. <laughs> and people can improve on that. That's the whole point about it, really. I have to say, you brought me out in a cold sweat there. <laughs> During my, my PhD, I was, I, mean, I was in the lab long enough ago that I was still doing radioactive DNA sequencing gels. And yes, I was buying the comb material and cutting it out with a scalpel because I broke one of the very thin combs. And so, yeah, <laughs> a 3D printer would have been really helpful at that point. <laughs> yeah. so I think this is the thing. So again, we do Google searches to find information. Mm. Uh, I think we can do sort of objects searching for 3d printing and it's it's those sort of things okay i need that it's there in an hour it's better than amazon sometimes dead right and i think that that immediacy of information is also you know a really important thing as again you talked about with digital data you know the fact is that can essentially be transferred instantaneously you're not trying to send samples or prototypes you know i mean even at the moment you and kevin are what less than 50 miles apart i guess in terms of your labs but two or three days to ship stuff unless you get in the car and drive it so that does tend to be the case actually so we we drop things (laughs) by car down to each other sorry just there yeah i I did see in your um in your social uh, media feed there was a a cheese cracker box i think that um, had had some parts in it now um, am i right in thinking that most of the 3d printing or all the 3d printing you do is, is 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 using some sort of a plastic type feedstock so what limitations does that have because i know in many scientific disciplines the 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 surfaces can have a big impact on the chemistry and in my mind traditionally flow reactors would be glass or stainless steel or hastel or something so how's that how does that impact what you can do or is it you know actually a lot less of an impact than you might think so it does have an impact so there are two main types of printing we use there are uh, fdm so fused deposition modeling uh, which is the taking a plastic, melting it, and creating a shape out of it. And there's stereolithography, so SLA-based printing, where we take a liquid resin, which contains monomers, and we polymerize them with light into a structure. So styrene into polystyrene, for example. It's not styrene, but it's um, acrylate-based materials and others. So we may take uh, acrylate monomers, we polymerize them with light into acrylate polymers. 
to create a structure. And so effectively, like the Terminator comes out of the floor you know, from a, a sort of liquid into a solid. It's a bit like that. That's yeah. visualization. As, as a non-chemist and somebody who um, skimped as much of his biochemistry classes as I possibly could, what are the kind of limitations that that has? So some of them can be about sort of structures. So obviously mm-hmm. you can't 3D print structures effectively without um, support material. So sometimes you have to be very clever about your design. And so you have to think about these sort of gaps in between different structures if you want a, a clear flow path, for example. So you can do that with the SLS printing, so which is a powder-based uh, polymerization process. Uh, you can 3D print in steel as well, which is quite nice, or other metals, which we've, we've done quite a lot of. Uh, Kevin has a very nice present that we sent him as well in, in a metal um, printing process or combined uh, materials. So it's, it's about thinking through your design and structure before rushing to print something I think is crucial. Mm. Limitations-wise, it doesn't limit it. You, you just have to be, think a bit before you do something sometimes. And I'm, I'm interested you talked about metals because that was going to be one of the questions I had. So company I worked for previously was very big in 3D printing and, you know, for uh, what would you call, me- you know, mechanical parts like bits of airplanes and helicopters. So, you know, serious yeah. stuff. And so I know the technology is out there. How accessible is that metal printing? And is that something you have your own three metal 3D printers or, you know, you work outsource or rent time on somebody else's? Uh, we tend to use them commercially, so we we tend to prototype in-house with plastic if we want metal. Yeah. And then once we're happy with the part, it functions in the way we want. We then commission that in metal from an um, online supplier, oh, right. and it's there in a, a couple of weeks maximum, really. Because again, quite often you're designing things in a rush, you tend to make mistakes. Um, so we, we've learned the hard way and gone back and actually <laughs> tested it out first, and then sorry, okay, redesign, remodify, and then print out in metal for the final part that you actually need. Yeah. Because it it does add a commercial premium. But then in-house metal printing takes a lot of space, it's time consuming, it's more difficult. And so therefore it's not really what we need to do right now. One of the other things I kind of got a, a changing tack a little bit, but um, I got a, uh, an impression from, from again, from you know your social media is one of the benefits you have is you're able to do work at home at the moment because you've got, I think, a 3D printer in your garage or shed yeah. or, I don't know, a kitchen table. Is, is, is that right? You are? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and, yeah, and so What's that like? Because it's, you know, as we were talking about earlier at the moment, you're in the lab a few days a week and then at home. Um, it kind of feels like you can do lab work at home, which we've been discouraging on our team. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's not really what my wife is happy about, really. Um, but it, it, I guess it started with the start of the lockdown last year. So around about January, February time, when the reports started coming out from uh, China and we saw the impact um, that it was having. Mm-hmm. You could see how it was going to go. You could see that we were going to have, once the cases started to spread, Italy was really the trigger. Um, when you saw the north of Italy start to have problems, we realized actually we're going to be shut down at some point. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I moved about three printers home so that I could still carry on the science. But also, uh, more importantly, we could, we could, you could easily see the shortages mm-hmm. coming. And then we started to look at designing PPE for the health services. So we linked up with a few hospitals across London at UCL. Mm-hmm. And we started producing face shields. But obviously, being at home, you can't manufacture things. And so we, we effectively built a network across London with lots of 3D printers, people joining up together, making face shields for the NHS at the time. It was good because that was the thing they needed. They, they didn't have the protection at the time, and we had to do it. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of just, I mean, the kids were making it at home. We were making all the face shields. We were producing, sort of, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 per day at home. Um, wow. And then we were then driving late at night, dropping off at houses who were then taking the hospitals the next day for the doctors that needed it mm. at the time. It was crazy time, absolutely nuts. But yeah. it, it, was, it was what they needed at the time. And I think that also allowed us then to do things for 
once that crisis was averted a bit more and they, they got a stable supply, we could then turn back towards the science we needed for the labs are coming back to that. As again, think about what did we need in the labs coming through, which was some of the flow chemistry which we had at home, um, reactor designs that my group could make it in their homes, sent to me I could print out and evaluate at home. It was what we had to do at the time to survive, really, I think. Yeah, but I, I think that's a very, a really good example of, of this democratization that you spoke about. In um, being some, somewhat simplistic, but if you can take that and run it at home, you know, you can imagine that in almost any setting where I guess there's a supply of electricity and, you know, you can get your, your feedstocks delivered. If anybody who's listening, who's uh, in a lab, either running it or working in it, and is thinking, oh, man, I've got to, I kind of got to get on board. What, what's your advice to people who are looking to start out, maybe, you know, using 3D printing to, to support their lab work, irrespective of whatever discipline they're working in? I think recognize it's not going to work all the time. It's not magic. It will only um, be as good as, as what you want to make. So yes, you can make everything. And I think the key thing is try and make everything. Make random stuff. Print out odd things. Print out, I don't know, Baby Yoda or whatever you want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to understand how it works. To understand infill. To understand what works as a structure. Uh, mm-hmm. Try it. Just make mistakes. Learn from mistakes. That's what science is. And Record any, what you do. Yeah. Any resources you'd point to? I know there's a really strong uh, 3D printing Reddit community which yeah. i sort of follow with interest but any any anywhere else you'd suggest um I'll start looking at thingiverse there's lots of great designs people share on there mm-hmm. um people disparage it because of its its website but it, it's a great resource for starting from it's all free we've got quite a bit of stuff on there people can download as well and the idea is that you share you try things out you take the design you can then remodify it mm-hmm. again uh tinkercad is a great starting point for 3d designing it's not perfect again mm-hmm. it's free Mm-hmm. It's a really good free program you can use to design very simple objects. And that's where we started. My, my kids used it as sort of seven, seven years old. They were designing their own things at home. So Excellent. Wow. You can still do it. I think the other thing is networking. Mm-hmm. Also recognize it's good to network your machines. So I can connect my phone to my printer at home, watch what it's making, and I can print in the car while I'm driving home. Not while driving, obviously. No, obviously not <laughs> as a passenger. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. To clarify okay. that. No, that's, that's, that's really great. And, uh, you know, I hope, uh, you know, some people who are 3D curious will, uh, will, will, will take a look at that. So if you don't mind, I'd like to sort of switch to talking to uh, something else, which, you know, you, you seem to be, uh, you know, making great strides in, which is the use of VR. Now, I know that, again, when I sort of like see you in, uh, on your social media or on your website, that's something you're using a lot for your teaching responsibilities um, at UCL. Was this something that you were looking at pre-pandemic anyway and luckily that gave you a bit of a head start or was this a need to change teaching style it, surprisingly it was pre-pandemic so we started probably about june 2019 mm-hmm. looking at this as to what it could do we're working in a really good company in germany real world one they're a great company to work with really advanced in terms of their uh, capability with virtual reality but once you try it you realize how lifelike it is i think that was what really sort of changed my viewpoint as to how we could use it most of the time you think it's just a gaming tool. It, it is, but it's that ability to visualize environments which are very expensive to access normally. And it's, again, the democratization of, of science, really, or technologies. It's really cheap. Headsets are around about £300, which is not inaccessible at the price of an iPad. And what that means is, for outreach, for example, I could send 30 headsets to a school, I can meet them in virtual reality and I can explain all the science we do rather than a school organising a coach to London 
uh, getting permission letters from the parents, losing a few kids on the way, <laughs> packed lunches. It, yeah. uh, and for an hour of, of time visiting laboratory, we could do that with 30, 40 schools and save everybody's time. And so what it, I mean, our, our mantra is send headsets, not people. So if you want to think about sustainability, low carbon, it, it's a great approach to teaching. And we, we take the concept of digital twins. There's no point in creating these beautiful, well, there is these beautiful, wonderful um, sets you can create in virtual reality because you want to show what you do. So we uh, use the idea of digital twins where we recreate the exact replicas of our working environments and use those for education. That's our, our, our key goal, really. Something that we don't talk about a lot on this show is, 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 is the teaching aspect of of, of science but do you feel that as with many areas of life the pandemic has inherently accelerated the, a change in education where a greater proportion of it will be online versus you know sat in a lecture theater or sat in a huge lab with you know 70 other people all doing the same basic test you know are you in favor of that approach as well I think we mustn't neglect human-to-human contact. I think that, that is utterly crucial. Without that, I, you cannot gain everyone's full understanding or emotions. So again, as in this podcast, I can't see your hand movements. I can't infer whether you've understood a concept I'm, I'm explaining to you. I, I, I can't recognize where your eyes are looking, so neurolinguistic programming. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's that, or your shrug of your shoulders, or that sort of like immediate reaction that you've understood a concept I'm explaining. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't neglect human-to-human contact. Having said that, I think technology is advancing to the point where you can understand that. With Zoom, it, it works okay, but it is a bit like talking to the void. Students hate turning on their cameras. Yeah. Either, I mean, not saying they're in bed, but sometimes they admit they are in bed and they're watching it on, on Zoom, so you just see the names. And I think that's awful. It, it, it's not where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic has forced us to adapt rapidly to incorporate technology, but also to use what it has to offer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I love with the virtual reality that I can work in a lab with somebody and I can pass the equipment. We can share that. We can discuss that. And I can take a viewpoint that I couldn't do on a flat two dimensional zoom screen. So we, we've been working with some engineers in Germany and the U S on a product we've got coming out soon on flow chemistry. And it's amazing. It's working in virtual reality with it. We could pass each other those objects in VR that we couldn't do without having to fly to each other or, or on zoom. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And, and you can, but you can be in different countries, different sides of the world while yeah. that's happening right so and you, you tend to forget sometimes in vr that you're you're not in reality so sometimes yeah. in my, i'm in my kitchen i tend to forget where i am and i forget that there's a wall next to me and when i'm, I'm passing something to somebody I, I bash into the wall or mm-hmm. say for example i'm i've got the vr headset on and i'm sat at a table in, in virtual reality and I, I forget that i'm actually in the meeting room and mm-hmm. so I was, I was talking to somebody one time in vr and the cat obviously decided that she was bored enough that she decided to insert herself to my arms on the table so that when i went to lean on the table in vr because i knew in reality, I was at the table. There was this strange furry thing underneath, which made me sort of shriek out. It, it is a very good substitute for real life. I think that's where I think, unless you experience it, it's something you can't really understand their concepts, how real it can be. And I, I, I will concur with your forgetting you're in a virtual environment. I've uh, tripped over some sensor stands for a virtual reality environment more times than I, I, I care to, to, to remember. I take your point about the human-to-human contact. And, you know, if, if you're going to university your education is part of the reason you're there there's there's other reasons for potentially leaving home and going to university but again i think coming back to your comment about the democratization you know if more of this stuff is available online reduces the barrier to entry potentially and like you say you know 
if you've got students in a different country or potentially students in a different country, you know, they don't necessarily have to get on a plane and come over to the UK as often. As well as teaching, are you using any kind of VR tools for research as well? At the moment, we're just trying to understand how we use it. But my, my dream is to have a digital twin in my lab. And then when I walk up to my fumigate in virtual reality, I mm-hmm. turn on the hot plate, I start a process that is then triggered in real life as well. So ultimately, I can have laboratories which are controlled in virtual reality. Now, I know you can do that on the computer screen, but it's not the same as actually physically seeing there and doing that and understanding the process. I, th- I think it's the digital replication of exact information is crucial and the same process. So having robots that I can control remotely in VR that replicate my hand movements per fumigate would be perfect. And I, so I guess that's not only helpful to be able to operate remotely, which like you say, you know, a lot of kit allows you to do that today anyway. I guess if you're working with potentially dangerous processes or chemicals, it, the safety factor just is, is much higher being able to, to have that remote operation. So it's like a, almost like a digital glove box, right? I mean, I don't think anybody's going to exactly. be safe if they don't have to log into a glove box anymore. <laughs> No, my, my dream would also then for a glove box, for example, that you could effectively be in that glove box without being face pressed up against the glass and your arms as deep as possible you can, but you can't quite reach that bottle. And imagine having a, a virtual reality robot inside there that does, or linked robots, that do the exact replicas of your hand movements. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, t- t- tell me where, where to send my money, I'll invest. <laughs> One of the things we haven't spoken about then is, is the applications that you, you put these to. So th- these are you know enabling technologies and, and you're obviously pushing them forward. But I look on your website, you, for instance, you talk about uh, just a couple of things I picked up is, you know, agents for cancer work on dementias and Alzheimer's disease. So how does this all come together? I think ultimately it was working on Medchem particularly for cancer and uh, neuroscience or memory mm. deficit disorders is, is really my, is what I'm passionate about in terms of science. But quite often when you're trying to make molecules or do things, you are frustrated by the lack of the technology to do those. And in some ways, that's why we've gone back to the technology side to help us solve those gaps to do the science better. Right. So I, I, I still call myself a chemist and I still focus on medicinal chemistry. We still have drug discovery programs going on, but the technology is, will, allow us to do those so much better as we advance. So I guess it's a circuit in some ways, a bit of a diversion, but a diversion to get somewhere faster. So you see your route to London, for example, you see a delay of 30 minutes in the traffic. And so would you like to take this diversion on Google Maps? Uh, It will save you 20, 30 minutes. And sometimes that journey is worth it because it allows you to do those things so much better. It Mm -hmm. gets you to that target much faster. The the photochemistry is a big example. So we're doing some photochemistry at the moment. and with batch, you probably do three or four reactions a day. But we find ourselves with flow chemistry doing 18 to 20 reactions per day because we're doing things so much better. So that diversion of, of a couple of months has been worth it because ultimately our, our, our speed is so much better. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the investment to get, to get somewhere quicker. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting way to think about it. Um, it's, so, Steve, if, yeah. if, if I can sort of uh, think about maybe bringing us towards a close because I know uh, you've got a, quite a busy schedule. What are the technologies or the, the applications that you're excited about getting your hands on next? Because I have a feeling that in a couple of years, you'll be doing the virtual reality, and the 3D printing, and then some other like really cool, exciting stuff that's a little bit fringe at the moment. So, you know, where's your, where's your mind at in terms of the future? Future-wise, oh gosh. Um, I love the cost of lo- or the low-cost electronics at the moment. I think that's really my, my key focus. Writing my own software to do things in the lab as well. I think that, that's becoming 
much more useful. So Arduino is a great platform for that. Um, Raspberry Pi. So again, a five-pound circuit board gives you the ability of a two-thousand-pound machine. Mm-hmm. I think that that's and low-cost sensors. I think is is really my current focus. Mm-hmm. Digital data, I think, is is really going to be crucial. Uh, machine yeah. learning. I really fancy a robot in the lab. That's what I would like. Um, so a human type robot with uh, robot arms that can replicate the same movements is, is really my, my next financial goal, I guess, uh, right. as so, what I want to do. Okay, so uh, yeah. Boston, Boston Dynamics quality. If only, yes, yeah, yeah. I, I would like that. That's cool. So Spot the Dog would be great to have in the lab to do things. <laughs> um, I think science, you should be curious. Mm-hmm. You should play. You should make mistakes. I love, I love watching children, how they play, how they learn from each other. And I think as scientists, that's really where we, we should be. We need that in interconnected networking and learning from each other. But what we don't do, or what we do, which children don't do, is write things down and record our mistakes to share. So children will do the same things multiple times when they make mistakes and it will ultimately learn from that. I guess you've probably touched electronic fence or electric fences as well as I have uh, just yeah. to find out does the current sort of first thing or not. Yes. You've got to do it because you want to know. You, <laughs> yeah. It's the curiosity, isn't it, really? It really um, is. yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, don't do this. It's a very bad thing to do, but curiosity should always drive you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, as a scientist, you have to be curious. You have to take calculated, safe risks mm-hmm. in terms of what you do. Carry out correct, appropriate risk assessments, but you have to be curious. Yeah, you have to try. And I think that is an excellent place to wrap up the conversation today. So Steve, thank you very much indeed for your time and joining us on the show. Perfect. No, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation even half as much as I did. I had a great time recording that. It was a fantastic opportunity for me to speak to Stephen. I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to take some of his time and, and get those insights. And I'm glad that I'm able to share them with those of you who've listened. I also have to say a thank you to Kevin Lamb, who's been on the show before. As Kevin made the suggestion and the connection to Steve, it wouldn't have happened without him. So Kevin, thank you for that very much as well. So I hope 2021 finds you all well and safe. And uh, we look forward to bringing you more episodes of the show. We'll be back in a couple of months' time. And until then, I hope you stay well and look forward to speaking to you again soon on the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Our theme music is provided by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll have the next episode drop straight into your podcast feed.